Business on Life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's a phrase that's been thrown around quite a lot in the Westminster village over the last few weeks. I'm talking about the call for U-turns. The new Chancellor launched his mini-budget. The financial markets have been in turbulence with fears about pension security. The Bank of England has been spending billions buying bonds. And the call to Prime Minister Mrs Truss and her government have been for U-turns in their policy. In a conflict-ridden Prime Minister's question time this last Wednesday, acrimonious accusations flew thick and fast with the Prime Minister insisting that the choppy financial weather wasn't due to her actions, but rather was a response to global uncertainty. Do a U-turn, turn around, that was the persistent call, and of course the call continues. Now, it's not for me to take time here to get knee-deep into the political issues, but I'd like us to think personally about the idea of U-turns, turnarounds for us all. It was the late Margaret Thatcher who insisted that the lady was not for turning when she was criticised for her policies back in 1980. Following Jesus involves personal U-turns for us all. Matthew and Zacchaeus, infamous tax collectors, walked away from their profiteering businesses to follow Christ. Peter and his pals left their nets to follow in the footsteps of the Lord. There's a word for these U-turns in the New Testament, a word that's not too popular these days. It's the word repent, repentance. So tonight, let's take a fresh look at that Bible word and consider, are there U-turns that we need to make in our own lives? We're talking about U-turns, repentance. What on earth does that word mean? The word repent is almost a universally misunderstood word. Living in America, the word is often associated with hate groups like Westboro Baptist Church, a group, a cult that turns up at the funerals of service people screaming repent at the gathered mourners. Or perhaps we might think of a man standing in the shopping centre with a poster with the word repent scrawled on it in gothic type. He screams at passing shoppers. Perhaps some of us might admire his boldness, but we wonder about his strategy. Is he winning people or just turning them off? It's not helped because often turnarounds and apologies aren't popular in our culture anyway. Perhaps older listeners will remember that romantic movie Love Story and the slogan that accompanied the publicity was love means never having to say that you're sorry, which of course is absolute rubbish. We do need to say that we're sorry to each other and as we'll see, being sorry is part of repentance. Repentance is a thoroughly biblical word and repentance sits at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee with a bold message. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. We read about that in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. In our world though, telling people to repent and believe is likely to be heard as a summons to give up personal sins and accept a body of dogma or a scheme of religious salvation. 
This is a classic occasion where we have to unlearn our modern interpretation of these words and actually allow what was happening in the first century to tell us what the word repentance means. It does involve turning from sin, but actually the phrase is much broader than that. It really means give up your worldview, give up your agendas and trust me for mine. That's what God says to us when he calls us to repent. And so frequently do we hear that call. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, God's kindness leads us to repentance. And then 2 Timothy 2, 25, there's a repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. So let's take a broad view when we think of the word repentance. We're thinking about the word repent, repentance. Does it just mean saying sorry? Boys will be boys, as they say. And I recall one occasion when my grandsons were busily illustrating that truth. Alex had a toy that he didn't want to share, and Stanley felt that this was a violation of the Christian ethic of selflessness, so he gave his younger brother a bit of a slap. Alex didn't feel able at this stage of his spiritual maturity to turn the other cheek, so he gave his brother a slap in response. Much yelling ensued until our son-in-law Ben intervened, diffusing the escalating conflict, and then made the demand that parents always make when siblings get into a fuss. Now, guys, say sorry to each other. There was silence, reluctance, much shrugging of Junior's shoulders. Both waited, hesitating because going first with the apology would be tantamount to admitting greater guilt, and that just wasn't going to happen. Finally, the deadlock was broken. Stanley, his face wooden, eyes down on the carpet, mumbled, sorry. Alex responded with a reciprocal mumble. Neither one looked at the other. And although they did as they were told, this much was obvious. If there was such a thing as an instrument to measure heartfelt sincerity, they would have both registered low on the scale. What was real was their desire to end the telling-off session and the mouthing of, sorry, did just that. And it's not just children who do this. Some of us adults have honed this as a fine art. Saying sorry is a way to end the awkwardness of a potential offence. Elton John famously sang that sorry seems to be the hardest word, and for some it really is. I recently watched a documentary where a daughter confronted her father about the years of horrendous physical abuse that he'd inflicted upon her mother. The abusive dad looked shamed. He shifted around uncomfortably in his seat and said that he felt bad but that that was then and this is now. Let's move on, he said. What he didn't say was sorry. She waited and waited, allowing the awful silence to hang between them, desperate for him to just apologise. As far as I know, she's still waiting. I'm wondering if for some, sorry isn't just hard to say and it's not because love means that we don't have to say it. Rather, we can squander the word sorry like a country that hits an economic crash and discovers that its currency is now next to worthless, surely we can devalue the currency of apology if we use it thoughtlessly and cheaply. Sometimes, sorry is not about warding off conflict, 
but it's just a vanilla expression of politeness. Karina Schumann is blunt. She said, saying sorry is not always an apology, it's also a politeness strategy, a way to have smooth, norm-abiding, harmonious interactions. Being seen to be humble and being quick to apologise can be an expression of that. It's also a great way to look good. In wanting to appear servant-like, we consider that girding our loins with a towel is a tad bit extreme, and so an easier strategy is to live on the edge of apology. In a 2010 study, young Canadians were asked about their saying sorry moments. Many people aged 18 to 25 were more interested in impressing others and in advancing through making personal connections in their career and everyday life, and therefore are more open to saying sorry to keep the relationship positive. Even more alarmingly, some even use the word sorry as a device for repeating their bruising behaviour. The British government has been on a recent crusade to highlight the evils of domestic abuse and discuss the disturbingly high number of people who resort to violence in their closest relationships. No doubt the abuser often says sorry after the punching, but then the pattern continues. Sorry has changed nothing. I've met people who seem to spend their lives hurting others and then rushing to emotional apologetic speeches. They consistently bruise with their thoughtless words, hurt with their blundering decisions, but are quick to utter the word sorry. An apology is not a sticking plaster that we can hastily slap on to heal a deep wound, especially when the destructive pattern of behaviour continues. So what's all of this got to do with repentance? Well, it's just that the word sorry is often just the first step on a meaningful journey of genuine repentance. That's why the Bible celebrates godly sorrow. You see, there's a sorrow that we can feel just because we've been caught or because we're embarrassed about our failure or because we're grieved because of the consequences of our actions. But true sorrow is but a stepping stone to real repentance and then real change. And yes, it might involve some weeping, some emotion, but when the tears are dried, there's a change in behaviour, a change of mind. It was Saul in the Old Testament who wept bitterly over his murderous treatment of David, but all too soon his abusive behaviour returned. We read about it in 1 Samuel 26. In other words, he was sorry, but not repentant. Let's pause for a moment. Perhaps you're in a relationship where a punch is usually followed up with a tearful apology, and you may even been told that it's your Christian duty to forgive. Therefore, you have to put up with this abusive lifestyle. But that's just another form of emotional blackmail and manipulation. Sorry can be a hollow word and a control word too. It doesn't mean anything unless it leads to true repentance. So let's view the word sorry as a valuable, genuine concession that shouldn't be tossed around and cheapened. Let's not flash it in an attempt to validate our credentials in humility. And whatever we do, let's not use sorry in a way that creates more sorrow. Sorry is the beginning of repentance but not the end of it. As we've been reflecting on the word repentance this evening, let's also know something that's so important, and that is that repentance is a call to God personally and not just 
a call back to morality. The call to repent is a call to the Lord. Jesus differed from his predecessors in his proclamation of repentance. He specifically associated it with someone's acceptance of him. Those who were unrepentant were those who rejected him, and those who received him were the truly repentant. And of course, that's most beautifully illustrated in the story of the prodigal son, who didn't just leave the pigs, but he returned back not only to morality, but to his father. We read about it in Luke chapter 15. The call of the gospel is God saying to us, I am here, come to me. Christianity is not just a behavioral improvement program, a moral campaign, but it's an invitation, a calling for us to come into a relationship, a friendship with God by faith. Yes, repentance is a turning to sin, but at the same time, it's a turning to God. It might be that some of the issues that I've talked about this evening are very pertinent to you, maybe even has surfaced some pain in you, and you'd like to talk and pray with someone. The Premier Lifeline is available. It's 0300 111 That's 0300 111 And also, I'd love to hear from you if you've got comments about about the program, suggestions for future topics, you can reach me at lucasonlife at premier.org.uk. In a time when the phrase U-turn is much on everybody's lips, let's not miss the opportunity, perhaps for some U-turns in our own lives. See you next week. Lucas on Life.